smart, sharp, analytical people who are members of the inner circle um, of tiers two and three of this podcast um, and listeners, therefore, to the BungoCast Reading Club. Welcome. This is the final edition of the 2023 Reading Club. Apologies. We're a little bit late. We started it all a little bit late. It's kind of shifted over. But anyway, so this is, this is the last one of 2023. We're going to revamp things a bit for 2024, along with a whole bunch of other revamps. Um, that's to be announced soon. Keep an eye out. I'm going to keep trailing it until I actually have concrete news to give. But um, things will change, and they'll be it'll be exciting and fun. So keep an eye out for that. But that also means that the Reading Club will change a little bit. This will be announced in due course. So this is a way of concluding our 2023 syllabus, where we talked um, about freedom, uh, mortality, secularism uh, in the first third of the year, and then we moved on to questions of uh, crisis and legitimacy in the middle part, and now we're talking about uh, imperialism, international relations, and China's rise. So this is, because it's the last episode of the year, you'll know that, uh, you'll notice that we're doing episodes kind of three and four combined. We're doing the whole last part, second half of the book of um, Adam Smith in Beijing, Lineages of the 21st Century um, by Giovanni Arrighi. As a way of concluding this, and you know, it's a book about China's rise, about uh, written and you know, to, published in two thousand eight. So there's lots to reflect on in terms of what has happened in the interim. But it's also a kind of a nice way to round this out because it's forward looking. Um, whatever, whatever else happens, China's China's going to be there. <laughs> With that platitude <laughs> out of the way, Phil. Hey, thanks, Alex. So, as Alex mentioned, it is uh, the last of our um, of our old model reading club, and the second part of of this book. And I think, I mean, it's not just. I mean, it's not just the appeal of the book for me, at least. And I think part of the rationale for choosing it is not just the fact of its, um, not just the fact of the centrality it gives to China, but also the fact that so much of the argument hinges around the relative decline of the US. Um, and that is very much, obviously kind of very much being talked about now as the US, as we're talking now, I mean, the US is notoriously um, struggling to supply both Ukraine and Israel. At the same time, it's two close allies that are embroiled in their own regional conflicts. And so all that discussion of the decline of the US is very palpable at the moment alongside the far more significant role of China in the global economy now compared to when Origi wrote the book back in 2007. I suppose the other thing is that's um, also part of it is that the intervening period between now and then also saw, I mean, and this is something we'll talk about in a bit more detail because I think it is actually a useful historical corrective, I suppose, to some of the contemporary discussion. But Origi was writing at the time of the, um, just before the US election, 
that would come and um, sweep Barack Obama to power. And Obama kind of gave was perhaps the last, um, perhaps the last kind of, um, the last blast of sunshine on the peak, I think, of US unipolar liberalism before the sun set. Um, if I can put it in slightly portentous terms, looking back. Um, but I want to talk a bit about that, about how far the intervening period of the Obama years has, um, how that affects the argument and how that affects our kind of retrospective assessment of the left, I suppose, um, and also US decline, if the US is indeed declining. Okay, so with that throat clearing out of the way, what we're going to do is we're talking through part three first. And what I want to do is just briefly summarize some of the material from the relevant chapters before, as we've done previously, before extracting some of the themes I want to talk about more. And as with before, if readers feel that there's anything that we haven't paid sufficient attention to in the discussion, by all means, readers, I say readers and listeners, um, by all means, feel free to tell, you know to let us know um, and we'll try and come back to it. There the are readers bonus. too. This is the reading club. Yes, readers and listeners. Thank you, Alex. And then we'll come back to it in the um, Alpha Bonus Bonus. So part three is hegemony unraveling. And it's, again, divided into three chapters. And essentially, it's looking at the decline of, I mean, it's the centerpiece of the book with respect to the thesis on US power. And as the name, as the chapter, the first chapter in that section, Domination Without Hegemony, implies, it's mainly hinged around using the Iraq invasion for the idea that American hegemony is over because it's being substituted with the use of direct force with all the kind of consequent uh, reverberations in terms of expenditure of effort, costs to US empire, but also the alienation that it precipitated among both allies and in the global south, for want of a better term. So domination without hegemony is, I suppose, Rigi's summation of the Iraq invasion. The use of military force was a sign of the weakening of American hegemony. And he talks through it. He talks about how the US was, how the invasion, at least the first Gulf War, was intended to exercise the specter of Vietnam, the defeat of the, this kind of the defeat for US empire by a popular guerrilla insurgency in the South. And that this pattern seemed to repeat, or the, Spectre of Vietnam wasn't exercised, in fact, by the Gulf War of the early 1990s, not least because Saddam Hussein wasn't thrown out of power. And so there was the need for the return, and that essentially the um, the terror attacks of 2001 provided the pretext for this for this expenditure of military power. He talks through it in some detail, and particularly, I think it's... Um, you know, in terms of being a short summary of the failures of American of the American war efforts in Iraq, it's um, excellent. You know, I mean, it's not especially not especially um, drawn out or complicated, but in terms of talking about the failures of counterinsurgency, the brittleness of U.S. of the U.S. effort, and the fact that they were fighting an enemy that was far more far weaker, more fragmented, and less technologically sophisticated than the Viet Cong which is to say the Iraqi insurgency, all of that is to underscore the, 
I suppose, yeah, the hollowness of American power in this period. And also, I mean, it is, you know, one of the sections in the chapter, and again, it's kind of fascinating to look at, given this is something that's still being, you know, very much being talked about now with the regional fragmentation of the global economy. But he talks about the strange death of the globalization project. And he talks through this with the Bush administration in particular. And this is something I want to come back to because it's something that is um, easy to forget from from our point of view today, but the um, the reaction to the Bush and the unhinged character of the reaction to the Bush administration in that period, even before, in fact, even before, you know, the launch of the war on terror and the terror attacks of of September two thousand and one, it kind of sh- it kind of um, shadowed or um, prefigured Trumpism. And it's something we've picked up on in some of the previous discussion, but I wanted to return to it because Arigi addresses it most directly here. Um, so this is, a, it talks, I mean, this is, it combines the, um, it combines a discussion of American military failures in Iraq with the political economy of the time, including the rise of China, as well as um, talking through some of Arigis, I suppose, what he considers to be his fellow travelers. And there's this odd, and again, this is something I want to return to, but there's long, I think, been particularly among the Marxists associated with the New Left Review, a kind of an interesting and revealing in some ways, I think, reverence for um, US realists, and particularly John Mersheimer. Um, so Rigi is effusive in his praise of John Mersheimer's book, The Tragedy of Great Power Politics. Um, and Mersheimer is someone he comes back to, and Mersheimer is still very much a kind of a, um, even more so, a more prominent public figure now than he was back then. Back then he was um, famously a critic of the of uh, the Iraq war from the perspective of US national interests, and he's still a critic of American foreign policy, both with its support of Israel in Gaza, but also even more so over Ukraine. So there is um, this odd kind of affinity between Marxists such as Arigi and Mersheimer, who, despite on the surface, you know, there would seem to be little kind of political or theoretical resonances between um, a world systems theorist so deeply rooted in Marxian approaches to political economy and a theorist rooted in political, you know, I mean, purely kind of security dynamics at the international level. And so anyway, it's something which is interest curious, I think, and worth talking about. Chapter eight is, um, he talks through the, his essentially his reconstitution of a Marxist theory of imperialism, drawing heavily on um, David Harvey's idea of the spatial and temporal fix that capitalism goes through in Harvey's reckoning. He also talks a bit about the um, he talks or develops more some of Harvey's ideas, including the idea of accumulation by dispossession, the use of state power to achieve certain, um, to prop up and maintain a capitalist accumulation through the direct use of state violence and force rather than through this operation and logic of the market. And so this is, I mean, it's a fairly conventional, I think, for the most part, Harveyite account of of imperialism in this period. And Harvey's David Harvey's theory of imperialism was the most 
was enormously influential at the time um, of the of the Iraq invasion. Uh, Arighi qualifies it in some respects. He kind of emphasizes his own deeper historical perspective. He um, qualifies, he kind of introduces Hannah Arendt's, some of Hannah Arendt's political theory as an appropriate complement to um, the idea of uh, capital accumulation as this endless and limitless process that requires similar kind of logics of infinite power accumulation. And the two things kind of parallel each other. So he develops some of that. But that aside, it's um, a fairly, I think, a fairly straightforward account of of Harveyite theories of imperialism. And it would be familiar, I think, to, I presume, plenty of our listeners and readers. And then the next chapter, the final chapter in this section, and I think in some ways the most kind of intellectually intriguing particularly for me at least. I mean, and maybe that just reflects my own intellectual interest or perhaps um, perhaps others will agree with me. But it's the idea of the world state that never was. And here he uses, he kind of takes, for, puts forward this thesis that the American state is in different moments itself the proto-form of a world state or that by virtue of its sheer kind of stupendous military might and economic power that it's been thrust forward into being the um the kind of paradigmatic form of a world state and this i think is kind of genuinely it's it's a genuinely fascinating proposition and even if it's something which can only be kind of broached tentatively and teasingly i think or it's very tantalizing some of the thoughts that Dorigi develops and perhaps doesn't go far enough with i think in this chapter it's something even if it doesn't have any kind of clear political upshot i think it's an intriguing premise the idea that we're kind of trapped in a um in some kind of uh, historical antechamber between the beginnings of a world state and the inability to actually realize that political project on the scale that's necessary. You know, it's a fascinating, uh, it's a fascinating kind of proposition and one I think that's worth drawing out a bit more. So before, before we talk a bit more, uh, before we kind of slice a bit more deeply into some of the content and extract some of the themes I wanted to talk about. I wondered if you guys had anything to add onto a few more adornments, perhaps, to the skeleton I've just uh, set up. Yeah, I can um, have a go at adorning that skeleton a little. I mean, one thing, uh, or I, I don't know if either of you have seen Generation Kill, this David Simon no. TV show. No, I know the can... one, I never, but I never, I never watched it for some reason, actually. It's a good point. I had this recommended, albeit after a few glasses of wine, by by a listener who said it was the best thing on TV they'd ever seen, and so watched this fairly recently. And it is it is brilliant. It is a really fantastic account of the you you have these kind of reconnaissance marines kind of going through um, Iraq and sort of I, I, I won't give too much away. Not that there's all that much of a plot, but it just captures the 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 kind of i don't know the disorganization and the kind of the pointlessness and and just um you know they they didn't they didn't have a plan like it it really kind of it doesn't make these points too explicitly and it's all, it's got great characters and that's why it's good but it just made me think like this is the kind of the the counterpart of this i mean i think this is the best part maybe of the whole book this part 3 hegemony Un- unraveling 
and because it's I think it's the most kind of important thing in a way that he he deals with there's a lot of the longer term historical things but this is the real crux of it like his model of you know what is hegemony and how is that like underlain by all these kind of political economy and and kind of global politics factors this is the the meat i think of a lot of it because it's it's kind of the the u.s decline and understanding why that happens and what the consequences are going to be so yeah i think i think it was a really there's obviously a a lot to a lot more to talk about with the project for the new american century and and what actually happened in iraq but i think yeah it was yeah my i think my favorite part of the book for what that's uh worth yeah, no, I, I I agree with that. I also thought it was my favorite part of the book, not least because it's a book that is, is challenging insofar as it brings together lots of different themes, quite divergent and does um, quite deep dives into each of them uh, and has an argument in each of the parts. And then, you know, maybe we can come to this at the end when we evaluate the book a bit. But, you know, it's a question as to how well the argument as a whole fits together because he's doing all these different things. You know, he's doing kind of classical political economy and the theory of, you know, Adam Smith in the first part. And then he's talking about the economics of global turbulence and crisis and the notions of hegemony in the second part. And then, you know, the third part, as, as um, you know, George has just mentioned. And then there's also the stuff about, you know, Chinese ascent in the, in the fourth part, which we're going to come to at the second part of the episode. So I almost feel like taking, you know, taking bits from the parts I'm not sure how much I'm going to take from the whole the book as a whole. We'll come to that anyway. Um, so I don't want to I don't want to jump ahead. So maybe we 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 can turn now to to guess one of the first, to to the theme of the project for a new American century. Yeah. So this is something I wanted to cut into a bit deeply, a bit more deeply, which is the basic. Because I mean, if I've um, you know if I've correctly followed Origi, the basis the idea is that the project for a new American century is the moment so this was the kind of you know it was this kind of scenario for uh, maintaining american supremacy deeper into the 21st century drawn up by neoconservatives associated with the reagan administration that had gone through the bush the elder bush administration into into george bush, into the junior bush administration and it was, you know, people associated with people like Donald Rumsfeld and Paul Wolfowitz, who, you know, were names that were very kind of familiar during this period to those who were, um, you know, kind of following the Iraq war and, you know, politically conscious, politically conscious adults, I suppose. And it's interesting how quickly, you know, those names that seemed so kind of um, prominent in, I suppose, the demonology, the demonology of the left have kind of faded from historic memory. Paul, I mean, Rumsfeld only died relatively recently in the last few years. Anyway, but that was a project for a new American century, and it was all kind of very grandiose, maintaining America's economic lead, its ability to fight wars in multiple theaters, to continue America's kind of technological, military technological supremacy, the revolution, so-called revolution military affairs. The neocons were always big on that, which was all about laser-guided bombs and substituting American technology for American blood, essentially, so to avoid reliance on troops, but to use America's technological wizardry, essentially, to solve wars. So the thesis in this chapter, as far as as far as I can see, is that Origi essentially attributes the unraveling of American hegemony to the ambition 
of the Project for a New American Century. They get into power through the Bush administration. They seize upon the opportunity offered by the terror attacks and they overreach. And so it's a kind of a logic just of overextension and they go too far and this is how it all kind of crumbles away. And the reason I wanted to raise it is only because it seems, you know, I was, I'm skeptical that the, it seems to me it attributes too much coherence to the project for a new American century. You know, I mean, there's loads of think tanks that fire off reports, all sorts of wacky reports about what we should do, what government, this government should do and that government should do. And, you know, if you kind of extrapolated from all of the various think tank reports you could collect, you would end up kind of fizzing off in all sorts of different directions. So it always seemed to me that they, that the left, the anti-war left of the time attributed too much significance to the project for a new American century. And famously, you know, Wolfowitz talked about how the, they were determined to, um, to kind of wrap up unfinished business with Saddam Hussein in Iraq but it was, uh, you know, it was kind of a faltering, a faltering um, need to maintain the momentum of the war on terror, and at the same time negotiating between all these various bureaucratic arms of the U.S. imperial state. So I suppose I wondered if you guys had any thoughts about this. Did this is Rigi overegging it with the PNAC? Well, so I mean, I I always have thought with regard to the project for the American century and just the invasion of Iraq in, in you know, in, in total, whether um, it was somehow necessary or entirely contingent, right? To what extent was it an extension of the logic of capitalism or of empire or of the United States own history or something that there was some kind of like necessary fulfillment of, of some trajectory and that invading Iraq was somehow like, yeah, that's what happens. You might be against it, but this is what happens in capitalism or when you have a, a like a unipolar s- system, uh, you have a, a hegemon to the degree hardly ever witnessed in world history in terms of the United States predominance and in, in, you know, when it, when it wins in the period after it wins conclusively the, the cold war. And I, I'm not sure exactly where Arigi falls on this because he, as Phil says, you know, he concludes it's kind of overreach. Interestingly, he does talk about the thing that has, the thing that I guess left critics of the left said at the time of the, of the invasion of the Iraq war was that, no, it's not just a war for oil. I mean, that if, if it were just simply that the U.S. could bring in Saddam from the cold, it was their previous ally anyway. And just do a deal and, and get the oil that way. And so, you know, I remember making this point, other people making this point, you know, it's not just that. It's like if they wanted to do that, they don't need to invade. It's costly. It's complicated. It has risk. Why would you do that? But Origi kind of not comes full circle, but kind of um, comes back to then goes, no, oil was important, but it's more about a, a, a broader project of control of the oil spigot, as he says, several points in, in, in that chapter, as a means of extending its domination. And so the conclusion then that it comes to is that that overextension of empire was not just a purely contingent thing of this faction coming in behind Bush and taking its moment to revitalize American, the American empire. And it's important to note, actually, just as, a, as an aside, this question of revitalization is central to the neoconservative project. It's domestic project, not just its, its international project, right? So revitalization is important. And you do that through, through violence. <laughs> you do that through, um, through the, the exercise of power. And, you know, this is the United States, which has won the Cold War, has lost its old enemy. The neoconservatives are conscious of the kind of lassitude 
lotus eating post kind of post conflict vibe that can emerge and so we need to fucking energize this this empire again we look how much fucking power we have no one's ever had this much power let's fucking do it let's 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 go after this stuff we can do it everyone else is going to fall in line what are they going to do not go to war in Iraq? Well, it turns out that they didn't, right? Lots of <laughs> they didn't join the coalition of the willing. It was just UK and a bunch of losers. Well, who joined. some some did, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. But you know, so in that context, the overextension becomes not just a kind of delusion amongst the neoconservatives, but becomes something in a in a historical context that is a a kind of necessary consequence of empire. Like this is what empire does. It reaches a certain point where they overextend themselves. So although it is a decision that's taken by a small group of people, so it seems kind of contingent, there's a kind of deeper necessity or, or historical mm. pattern that recurs in, in overextension. Now, yeah. the, the, just, just one final point, because why does Arigi put so much emphasis on this and specifically on the project for New American Century and the, the specific details of how that would play out? I think what makes it, enticing and intriguing and, and tantalizing actually is that the ruling class rarely spells out its aims in such explicit manner much less from the nucleus of empire saying hey this is what we're going to do this is our plan for domination and this is how we're going to achieve it like and they i think they often do like no I say, they don't it's, it's always no, it's ancient ideological no, there's loads of think tank reports and, op, you know, kind of these essays in foreign affairs that talk about, oh, we need to expand NATO, you know, like we need to do this, we need to do that. There's loads of stuff like that. Sure, but maybe they don't, but they don't always do it, right? Or it's more complicated and it's ideologically hedged. And this kind of is pretty, I don't know, I find it, I think it maybe stands out a bit with regard to those in, insofar as it's enacted, they actually try to do it. And the even the discourse from the top poll politicians or whatever, Rumsfeld or whatever, are in line with that. So there's kind of a lack of ideological drapery around it, which I think makes it enticing for the for the scholar, you know, in the case of Rigi, to, to study it and to pl place a lot of emphasis on it. Yeah, I think I was I was fairly convinced by Rigi's, I guess, case that PNAC is a, yeah, it, it, it had a contingent aspects, but it did speak to something, you know, deeper about what how america saw itself and and you know it would have seemed probably possible in the you know 1980 post 1989 there's no soviet union competition there's this belle epoque of the 90s and everything's kind of going very well and so then iraq is intended as the kind of the first step in in this pnac project and it you know obviously doesn't end it doesn't work out like that it becomes a test of the hegemony and, and revealing that there's no consent just coercion there i mean you know it's also worth this project for the new american century gets three years into the 21st century that's how like that's how long it it, it lasts so there is a kind of i think he makes this point well that the the neoconservatives did not have to wait very long for a pretty kind of decisive refutation of their of their project which probably symbolized a lot more about what american the American elite was was thinking for that kind of project of how to continue hegemony to to start to unravel. So I think I think it's a that's why I like this part of the book so much because it's like it does it does feel consistent and it does feel like this case that he made about Vietnam being the the signal crisis and and Iraq the terminal one which we talked about in, in a previous episode and the you know the neocons having to kind of banish this Vietnam syndrome and unsuccessfully doing that with uh you know subs uh, not even substituting it but just complementing it within a, a iraq syndrome as it were 
Um, I think that's, you know, that as the basis of the unraveling of American hegemony does seem to me to be a pretty, you know, pretty good case that Origi makes. The other element, I think, which is, well, I suppose just on that, yeah, I mean, the you know, the I still know, I still don't really find the oil spigot thing. Um, I think it's called the tap in English, Alex. Spigot, spigot is a good word, though. <laughs> you can imagine it kind of spigoting out. Well, spigot is different from a faucet, right? Faucet. Oh my god, the, don't the faucet synonyms, is also the American, the American synonym for tap. Faucet. Let's just let's just call it a tap. Yeah, I, I yeah. mean, tap or spigot, not faucet. <laughs> so the oil spigot thing, like. It, I mean, that always seemed to me like it was already, it was already a fallback. So from the people who were saying, you know, the kind of this is a war for oil, the kind of the vulgar, the vulgar, um, vulgar Leninist kind of, um, which was the spontaneous, the spontaneous response of the anti-war left, I think. And then the kind of the more sophisticated and defensive formulation was no, well, you know, the Americans don't need the oil, but they want to control the oil supply to everybody else. But again, I mean, it seemed to me to be a bit kind of, you know, they could have cut a deal with Saddam, you know, like, and, you know, this was, remember, at the same time that they had sank, Gaddafi was sanctioned and Libyan oil and gas wasn't on the market, you know. So it doesn't doesn't seem to me that there was, um, me, you know, meaning that oil was already kind of, um, you know, the oil price was already kind of being propped up effectively by the Americans um, by virtue of the vendettas they were pursuing against um, these third world figures. And so... It just doesn't seem to me like compelling ultimately, like um, that there was real necessity to it. I mean, I buy the, you know, I buy the idea that there is a necessity to, or there is, you know, obviously that there is kind of imperial overstretch. However, whatever concrete form it takes is something which is built into um, the ebb and flow of um, of great powers. But the the oil spigot thing that was Harvey's claim in particular, I mean, he wasn't the only one who made it, but he was the one who kind of formulated it in the context of these debates among the anti-imperialist left. Yeah, I don't know. I wasn't, I was never quite convinced of it. The other thing I suppose I should note is that um, from our vantage point as well is how dismissive uh, Marigi is of Islamism. You know, he sees it as this kind of only serving as a pretext for U.S. military intervention. When it seems to me that given the way things have unfolded since the um, the failure of the Arab Spring, Islamist militias, you know, taking control of so many of the parts of the of the Middle East that have been destroyed by U.S. empire, it seems to me that perhaps he underestimated. And also the fact that the U.S. re-allied well. with <laughs> like them, with um, you know, with jihadis as they had in the Cold War, in various theatres, including in um, including in Yemen. You know, they used, deployed Al-Qaeda against the Houthis. They also um, relied on Al-Qaeda-affiliated militias in Syria against the Ba'ath regime there. So well, anyway... But, but, I mean, I think that kind of underscores that actually Origi was probably right at the time, of the time of writing, um, that the Islamists were not a really big deal. Um, but it becomes... Um, well, I don't know, maybe because he's writing in 2007, I'm trying to, th- but you know, it certainly becomes something which the U.S.'s actions become self-perpetuating insofar as it, it be- makes the Islamists setting the Middle East on fire, you know, kind of yes. creates yeah. a greater void for, for the Islamists to no, indeed. power. But so. I suppose, um, all I mean, I suppose, you know, it's not to, it's not to say that it's only to, I suppose, draw out the point that it's, it would be wrong, I think, to underestimate the significance of Islamism as a force for reaction in in the modern world. 
and perhaps that's the you know perhaps that you could be more complacent about it in the back into the early 2000s um but it would be wrong to be now and you know i wouldn't i'd be happy to i think it's um consistent and plausible to attribute a lot of that extended influence to both to the Americans propping the Islamists up in particular cases such as Syria and also to the chaos left in the wake of American failed American empire building projects in various parts of the world. So uh, just quickly, because I did want to move on, but just, is there any, did you guys have anything that you wanted to his analysis of American kind of strategic failures in Iraq or anything else from this chapter to draw out? No, I, I, thought, I don't think so. No, yeah, it's, it's, so a, it, it's a good chapter. It is. I mean, and I thought yeah. when he talks about the anonymous, he cites a report which includes, I think, an anonymous French diplomat saying how difficult, you know, how the um, how difficult it was for the U.S.'s allies, who on the one hand were seeking to restrain the U.S., but once the U.S. had kind of lumbered or blundered into Iraq, it was very difficult for them to kind of, um, you know, for the U.S. to retreat would have caused them more problems. And I thought it was actually very, it was good to be reminded of that and a very astute analysis of the the difficulty, you know, of that precise process of hegemony unraveling and, 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 and difficulties and was, for America's yeah. allies as a result of America's mistakes. And was repeated over Afghanistan fairly recently as well, the debate over that, where, you know, um, that there's a still a kind of demand for the US to remain there from from various camps, you know, because it would be irresponsible to leave. Of course, you know, by that stage of proceedings, it had been decades. So, um, but yeah. anyway, it's, it's, a, it's a question which doesn't, which doesn't disappear, right? You, no, indeed. Against U.S. unilateralism, but once they've invaded, you, they, there's a, it creates a demand to actually stay there, kind of a, a Yes. Are we, are we, I don't know if we're going to move on. Okay, I had another point, but I guess this will be maybe in the next session if we're talking about the long-term consequences of, of, of the Iraq invasion. Uh, yeah, I guess we can leave it. I just wanted to pick up on the um, what I would call, I mean, obviously Arigi doesn't call this because he died, uh, he died some years back, but on page 190, when he talks about how the Bush administration was already kind of experimenting with a tariff strategy with and was already um, feeling awkward with a WTO and that they were more kind of, uh, they were more willing to consider using tariffs strategically than the previous Clinton administration with the multilateral liberalization of trade and capital movements. I was intrigued by this, you know, I suppose partly because it indicates just how deeply rooted some of the um, turbulence that we're going through at the moment is but also, you know, I mean, there was the famous that famous quote apparently from when George Bush attended Trump's inauguration, and he sat through Steve Bannon's speech about the rusting hulks of American factories, and then turned apparently to one of his um, one of the people sitting next to him and said that was some weird shit. And so it just makes me it made me think of that, you know, like this kind of there are elements of the Bush administrations that seem proto-Trumpist. And not only in terms of the response of the rest of the world to, um, you know, Gore, Al Gore's birthright being denied him, but also the um, also actually visible in some of the um, economic policies and foreign policies of the Bush administration. So I thought it was uh, a curious footnote, but perhaps you know, perhaps not much more to be said about it than that.
so on the next chapter, I suppose there are two points I wanted to bring out here. The first is the the first is the accumulation by dispossession point, which I've oh, always wait, wait. had. We need to, we're going to need to spell this out. So this is the the next chapter. Yeah, is, so I'm going to go. I'm going to go into it. Yeah. yeah, I'm going to go into it in a moment, but only to say like. So this is the chapter eight, the territorial logic of historical capitalism, which is essentially Arigi's theory of um, capitalist imperialism, which he renders here. Um, and there are two points which I wanted to draw out a bit more and which I feel, I suppose, I'm unconvinced by. And I think it's uh, not just a kind of arcane intellectual dispute, but actually has significant consequences for how you understand uh, or political consequences for how you understand imperialism, foreign policy, and what have you. And the other element is um, the way in which he characterizes imperialism generally is, I think, inconsistent. But okay, so first of all, if we maybe deal with the accumulation by dispossession thing. So accumulation by dispossession is a kind of, it's a um, a revival associated, it's not exclusive to David Harvey, but he's the one who's most associated with it intellectually. But it's this idea that um, what Marx called in, um, in Das Kapital, he called um, primitive accumulation, which was the proto develop the early kind of form of capitalist development, where it relies much more on the direct extractive power of the state or the state effectively looting various pre-capitalist economic forms in order to rev up the motor of capitalist accumulation and the classic examples being um, the early slave trade or the um, colonization of the Americas by the Spanish and the looting of the Incas and the Aztecs or uh, or the uh, dissolution of the monasteries under Henry VIII in England. So there are different kind of examples of the use of state power and Marx's point is that it indicates a it's precisely because of the weakness of of capitalist social relations that there is this need for this external kind of push and and so it's a tell or a telling sign of capitalist yeah essentially of the weakness of capitalist so um relations and so harvey's claim is that we see that we have to think of this process not as a as a historical one off that happens in the early phase of capitalist development but as something that is ongoing throughout capitalism and so he calls it accumulation by dispossession i e the remove the um the replacement of some other form of property arrangement or some other economic arrangement by a capitalist arrangement um, which is undertaken through force and in this case it would be in the context of imperialism, it's the use, the direct use of violence at the international level, such as with the invasion of Iraq and the seizure of Iraqi oil fields, as an example of the um, of that process of accumulation by dispossession. Rather than um, buying your enemy out, you kind of go in with guns and you just turf out your opponent and take over their property. The reason I'm skeptical is because I think it's a... I think it over I think it was a a deflection. It became kind of central to all of these various debates around imperialism and became a centerpiece of left debates in this period. And it seemed to me that it was a way essentially that it was a deflection from analyzing 
the actual workings of the global economy to being kind of, I suppose, trapped in a moral denunciation of the most kind of dramatic and extreme events of the time. So, you know, seeing kind of being, um, being, caught up in the in the protests against Iraq and needing to find an economic logic for it and this became accumulation by dispossession and these arguments were kind of replicated in many different fields you know for instance in Latin America the use of militias in the Amazon for instance it's used as accumulation by dispossession or in Colombia when they're driving out indigenous people and peasants in order to set up plantations or the setting up of palm oil plantations elsewhere in the world. It's always referred to as accumulation by dispossession. So I just wanted to, to say, I mean, we, for listeners, firstly, we had an, a more extended discussion of this. I don't want to recap everything here. Um, so you should go check out the techno-feudalism or neo-feudalism um, section of the 2022 Reading Club syllabus, um, where we discuss this point, and an episode which we released for free as well, where we discussed Evgeny Morozov's um, piece in the New Left Review on techno-feudalism. So these kind of issues recur about whether capitalism needs political means to directly extract value, or if it just works in its own you know, self-reproducing economic sense. So I just want to make a note of that firstly. And just to, I mean, respond to, the, like, we, so we made this point, we, we, we've discussed this point that the, the appeal of the primitive accumulation or accumulation by dispossession point is that its character is moral denunciation. But I think we should also try to extract it from the leftist context and whatever motivations we might discern uh, <laughs> in, in people doing it and trying to see if analytically it actually makes sense. And I think Harvey's, Harvey's gloss on it gloss that's that's too flippant but you know kind of his version of 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 the of that account i think has more going for it because it's not just saying this is just a you know that it's primitive accumulation all the way through but rather this accumulation by dispossession is a recurring feature rather than a constant feature of capitalism that it has to avail itself of this at times of crisis or in advance of a crisis to kickstart the accumulation process over again. So you have a kind of overaccumulation in the metropole. You know, you've built up too many factories and whatever and they're not and the profit rates are dropping that you then go and like open up a new market somewhere else. Um by and your army goes and does that. And so the kind of is uh the 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 the, the state and military power specifically, um though not only is a uh, you know kind of handmaiden to to this ongoing accumulation process. And I think it's there's no reason to dismiss that out of hand, I think. No, I mean, not out of hand, but I mean, um, I think it doesn't, I think the whole point is it underestimates. I mean, the point about the primitive accumulation is that it exists in a world without capitalism. So I think to talk about accumulation by dispossession in a world that is capitalist, you know, and in which, um, you know, the Iraqis would have happily sold their oil to anyone if they weren't ten been kind of under UN sanctions, you know, and kind of under siege effectively by the US throughout the period, um, it seems to me to under, just to to overstate the role of those factors and their necessity in terms of capitalism, particularly with respect to something like oil production in the Middle East, you know. It seems to me that it very much was something which was much more contingent in terms of US policy than a necessity to maintain u.s domination in any meaningful sense and i think that's clearer now as well you know because um 
when we talked about uh, disorder, Helen Thompson's book, for instance, which listeners, um, you know, she was a guest on the episode and she, her book was about the geopolitics of energy. And she made the point, you know, this, um, this was the beginning um, of the low interest rate period in the aftermath of the great crash, which enabled the fracking industry to really take off in the US, helping to make the US energy self-sufficient. So, you know, the idea that there was some deep necessity to seizing oil directly by force in the case of Iraq, it just seems to me to be yeah, if it, I think if that's it a weak. Been... I think that's a weak case, actually. Like that's that's specifically, it doesn't it doesn't work, right? And Iraq isn't turned into like a, the kind of stable um, U.S. allied, you know, government and regime that that they wanted it to be. So I think that's like a that would be a a, 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 a bad case in which to test the accumulation by dispossession thesis. But isn't it isn't it a kind of a good case to test it because it it's it shows that it's not it's not essential. I mean, I, I tend to, we, you well, know, if we go back to that kind of techno feudalism episode, I think the, you know, there are there are a lot of weaknesses of the accumulation by dispossession thesis. I think even in, I mean, as quite aside from those theoretical weaknesses, I think in the book it doesn't. I just found this this chapter doesn't really flow from the last one, and it's kind of just like a bit kind of like when you're changing gear a little bit abruptly, perhaps. But yeah, I mean, isn't isn't it a good test case that it's it's kind of it would say that the American invasion of Iraq for oil was kind of essential. That's how capitalism works. That's how no, but, imperialism but, but works. But that might be that right? might be an episode where you, where you can dismiss it and go, well, that was just you know crazy neocons overreaching, right? But that if it's a recurring feature, there might be just be more less spectacular cases on which to test that that idea. And I'm I'm like just trying to dig into the book, trying to find what other kind of uh, examples that he gives in terms of like a spatial fix but i mean you know kind of opening up of new markets i think is kind of which maybe more run of the mill than the spectacular shock and awe invasion of iraq or cases there where is that no would seem- i mean i think the point is there is no place that is not capitalist right so by this point sure. to talk about kind of I think it kind of it, the lo- the implication and the logic are important here because the idea, you know, like the primitive accumulation thesis is in a pre-capitalist world, whereas the idea that you have this ongoing process in a capitalist world would suggest the implication is that there is some kind of better form of capitalism that isn't kind of this um, isn't this form, right? At the same time, I think it underestimates just how deeply entrenched capitalism is. So to use another example, right, if you if you think this is a bad case, I had an academic colleague and we batted this back and forth who was doing research on um, palm oil cultivation in Colombia. And we batted this back and forth. And, you know, the idea that the um, that before kind of local farmers and indigenous, the Afro- the Afro-Colombian kind of indigenous people are turfed out by the right-wing militias in Colombia. You know, they're not living in some kind of pre-capitalist communal paradise. And when they replace kind of cocoa farms with palm oil farms, these are people who are already very well integrated into global markets. You know, I mean, the cocaine goes right to America, right? And to Europe. So I think the point about the accumulation by dispossession thing is it's not to deny that there is the use of state power and violence to reconfigure particular, um, you know, particular markets, particular um, 
social kind of complexes, I suppose, particular political economic configurations. But the idea that it's um, accumulation by dispossession, I think, forces so many kind of logical and intellectual contortions onto only if you're only if you're still like hanging that on some idea of primitive accumulation, right? That it's somehow an, an encounter between capitalist modernity and a and a kind of cap and a pre-modern non-capitalist social um, organization, and that isn't what Harvey's case is. I mean, Har- you know, Harvey's case. I think it's is, the logic Harvey's of the case, argument. for example, takes things like privatization, right, of kind of state enterprises as, in some cases, a form of of, of accumulation by dispossession, right, yeah. throwing them into into kind of market circulation where they previously weren't. So it's not like a kind of modern versus pre-modern thing. It's no, like I get that, but I'm saying I'm saying that it it forces it's doing it kind of forces these um it has these knock-on cons- distorting in knock-on consequences in terms of the structure of the arguments that are made so you know like effectively saying that um you know privatizing some crappy state-owned firm is accumulation by dispossession seems to me profoundly you know it's just banal and suggests as if like the state-owned firm isn't somehow a capitalist enterprise in a capitalist state that's the logic of the argument, it seems to me. Otherwise, if it's not that, then it's not saying anything significant at all. Okay, so I mean, why not just say privatization? I'm, I'm not. I'm not trying to mount a defense of it. I'm just trying to explore all the the possibilities and no, kind no, of no, test no, the sure. argument. So, in 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 view of that, there's also because of primitive accumulation is at a point of kind of capitalist weakness insofar as you know you're needing this. You're needing that capital to kind of be set set free or, you know, kind of created that surplus to be extracted through violent means, right? And that's a point of, of capitalist weakness. The case that is made for political cap, quote unquote, political capitalism by Robert Brenner, for instance, is that we are in a phase in which capitalist weakness relies ever more on, on the state, right? So this is um, plunder, the use of just upward, upward state-led upward redistribution of wealth, which is what is, you know, Brenner argues is going on now, and, and Dylan Riley does likewise. And so the argument then would be maybe a little bit different in that accumulation by dispossession is accelerating now, precisely because of capitalist stagnation. That you don't have endogenous growth in in you know, and certainly much less than you used to. And so the state needs to start plundering from the poor. <laughs> directly rather than putting them to work to put it that to put it in kind of crude terms and I, so that kind of historicizes the argument it's not like this is a, rec- a accumulation by dispossession something that happens always it happens at points of capitalist weakness so it happens on the on the periphery right it happens in brazil in the countryside when they kick people off their land and whatever and and it happens in at a point in which even the core countries are um are kind of okay but look those so what are you know if the brazil those Brazilian small farmers are doing what coffee? Yeah, for well, yeah, sugar, let's say, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So I or mean, the point is, they're or subsistence for that matter. Uh, but you know, so but they're you know they're all there will already be in global markets. They'll already be part of an accumulation process. Sure, but okay, it's just replaced. Uh. One is replaced with a different one. That's all. Well, so it's the interest of one of big capital against kind of small capitalism. Yeah, for instance, or you know, like I just don't. It seems to me like you know either. Either it kind of is, it is a parallel to the primitive accumulation thesis, or it's um, a banal kind of relabeling of processes that are entirely, you know, entirely kind of common and typical. 
I don't want to get stuck on it. I mean, I suppose, um, you know, listeners can make up their own mind and they can um, look into it further if they wish to. It's only, I mean, I suppose we've, you know, we've we've laid down the markers in terms of our um, our views on it. There's just a few, another point I wanted to mention, which is um, uh, one, I mean, it's a small point, but I, I find it like, um, you know, I find it hard to avoid. And it's on page 247 when um, he mentioned he talks about the westward expansion of the U.S. of the U.S. state as a form of early, as a form of internal imperialism, but as a massive environmental and human destruction. It just seems to me like a kind of a shocking, kind of a shocking dereliction, particularly for a, a Marxist who's so kind of. Uh, also so uh, deferential towards China's industrialization and then casts um, U.S. kind of industrialization and expansion westward as some sin against uh, nature. I thought that was kind of beneath I rolled my eyes at it when I read it, and then I rolled my eyes again when I thought, I bet Phil's going to bring this up and be all angry about it. <laughs> so, you know. Very good. Well, very do you want to roll? Do you want to roll your roll eyes? Roll them a third? again, yeah. Roll your eyes Please a third do it time. again. So good, very good, Bec- very very twelve year old girlish. That's good stuff, Alex. <laughs> I wanted to make a serious point. Um, I had a, I, I had a serious point. No, go ahead, uh, go ahead, as well, George. Go ahead, that George. was, yeah. I mean, so I, I've I have said this on the podcast before this, but I'm. It really starts to, to annoy me when a book finishes with this kind of. It it's always has to be this environmental coda. Like the last thing, last final word. I know we're talking about part three, not part four here, but I'll make this point again <laughs> when we get there. But it's like, why? Why does it always? That's the end point of like of of all you know of all books. Now uh, it has to be something about environmental destruction and the world is gonna fucking explode and blah blah blah. It's just I don't know. So I I definitely reading this, I was like, oh no, that's it's it's annoying because it's like a bad bit of writing on a tv show it kind of takes you or a film it kind of takes you out of like i'm kind of enjoying this oh no i'm not anymore the spell's been broken i have to go back yeah, to suspending my disbelief in the next page i think that's exactly that, actually the way i felt i think you, it's you, not it's not you're a looking big, for heroes a, you're looking for heroes no, and you want it's not to a love point. everything about the oh, author and then you find out that they're not perfect and then you you know you you have this disappointment it's not a big point, but like Alex says, it's um, it's worth saying. It speaks to um, you know, at least my respect for Origi that I was disappointed by this kind of throwaway point, with all of its um, you know, I mean, it's contradictory in the sense that it kind of assimilates Native Americans to nature to begin with, you know, and that yeah, it, yeah, in itself is kind of just gratuitous and offensive. Anyway, so I, I my, my serious point about about uh, just one thing about this chapter, right? Um, which I think is worth. Spelling out also for the listener, if you if you're you know if you hadn't had a chance to read it yet, where he you know he spells out that you know empire in general that there that there is a territorial logic and a capitalistic logic and that they're intention. So the territorial one is basically about control of space, control of land, territory, etc. Um, and then the capitalistic one, which is about accumulation. And I think there's a way to illustrate this, which I think is interesting to refer back to the discussion about the consequences of the Iraq war, which is that the U.S. obviously blew a lot of money invading Iraq, right? It ended up with a lot of debt. 
And then the global financial crisis comes along not too long after, and then it has to do this massive bailout. And it kind of puts it in a weak position of, of, of accumulating ever more debt, which, you know, it's a bill the U.S. doesn't have to pay now, but you know, <laughs> it, it, it does, uh, it does uh, act as a burden kind of long term, which accumulates ever further than with the pandemic and so on. So the w- what's interesting is that there's a way maybe of doing the Iraq war where you privilege entirely like raison d'etat or the kind of national interest, if you see that invading Iraq and conquering that is is in the national interest. Obviously, it probably isn't, but the, but let's let's run with it for a second, um, where the territorial logic is predominant, right? Where, where you need to kind of have that spatial fix to then allow accumulation to continue. What's interesting is that Bush also passes these massive tax cuts, which further erodes the state budget. Um, at the same time. And there, it's kind of like, there you have the two intention. You have the kind of, to put it maybe in more contemporary terms, you have the neoliberal interest of basic corporations and the, the nation state doesn't really matter. It's just about pursuing the interests of corporations. And the more neoconservative vision, which is more about the state and about state power. And those two things often operate hand in hand in capitalism, but they also kind of can be in tension. And that moment there was one where George W. Bush tried to do both at once, but they're kind of mutually incompatible. Are you going to do this big war of conquest? Cool. But then you have to not like count that your domestic, give your domestic capitalists a bunch of money. Like they need to, they need to be subordinate to the, to the state interest. And this is a, something which um, just to foreshadow, I guess what we're going to talk about in part four is something that is very clear in China, where the capitalist interests are, are subordinate to the national interest, um, broadly speaking. And that's kind of different to the US. And, and, and that I think that the lack of negotiation between those two interests and those two logics is something which to a certain extent undermines American power and undermines American hegemony. It does. It's a good point. You know, the kind of the um, the debt with the, t- the increase. So they couldn't get they couldn't get the shakedown that they wanted of their allies the way they did for the first Gulf War, famously. You know, they got Germany and Japan to pay for the first war against Saddam. They couldn't do it the second time around. And that was partly a, just a political failure. You know, the lack of support and the alienation of allies from the um, from the Iraq invasion made they, you know, got all they stored up all this debt. And then the tax cuts, like you say, Alex, but, right, I think it kind of, it undercuts, it kind of undercuts, it cuts away from Arigi's thesis, right? Because it suggests like just a breakdown of capitalist politics in a very basic way. You don't have a state which is functioning effectively on behalf of a capitalist class, you know, and uh, making clear, you know, because an effective capitalist state would have been able to you know, to, to make clear to, they would have had enough capitalists on board that they would be opposed to tax cuts. They would understand why they need to keep taxes um, up, you know, all of this, right? So I think it kind of the, um, the idea that we're dealing with a, um, a kind of a solid, you know, cohesive and coherent project of capitalist imperialism doesn't, is precisely kind of on that idea. Uh, well, and that, I- isn't it also, a, a, I mean, isn't it instead, or maybe also, I don't know how to what extent these are in contradiction, but a, a more facet of a an, an end of history post-Cold War moment where the capitalist class is, and you know, and, and, the, Ameri- and the American state as a whole is kind of coasting, yes. living yes. off, of, you know, doesn't have, doesn't have the disciplining force of the having to face down yes. the Soviet Union. Yes. And so the capitalists are like, yeah, give us goodies too. Wait, why don't we do invade Iraq and get the goodies? Like, can we not just have... Have it yeah. all? Like, why not? Yeah. You know, there's a and yeah. and, and so there's a, a that lack goes, of rest- that goes deep. That yeah. goes deep, goes deep, right? So, in the sense, like you can have like 
you can have a capitalist class that's effectively unable to um, to secure effective representation of its own interests. So rather than being on a kind of a global rampage of accumulation by dispossession or taking Iraqi oil fields or whatever, in fact, it's unable even to kind of consistently understand its own interests or to get the state to represent them. Because if they did understand what they were doing, they they wouldn't have gone through with these um, with the absurd tax cuts in the middle of um, of this uh, enor- kind of enormously expensive conflict. And and you know it repeats itself to talk about the continuities again that you mentioned between George W. Bush and Trump. That like Trump, whatever else he's going to do, you know that they that his backers are going to expect a tax cut from him. Um, and so for it's interesting there that for all of Trump's more much more explicitly nationalist politics, for his more mercantilistic approach, for his direct confrontation confrontation with China, um, much more forthright than the Democrats were willing to do before, that, you know, there's still that kind of capitalist class, basically, or, or to put it this way, Edward Luce in the um, the Financial Times Ooh. was saying, well, I read the Financial Times okay. and Edward Luce. He said that in his recent thing about this Trump- This isn't Avara Media. Well, okay. Well, I don't know what you're talking about, Phil. Let he's, me just finish my point. allowed to read the Financial let Times. Me, yeah, let Come me on. Sh- Oh, I read books. Oh, we're talking oh, about wow, a fucking big man reading book. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry for that, listener. The Edward Luce makes this point that um, obviously, kind of favoring the Democrats and on on flimsy bases, but that Trump is ultimately, you know, that there's a conflict between capitalism and capitalists. So ultimately, you know, acting in the interest of capital in general versus just favoring kind of individual or groups of capitalists, and Trump represents the latter. Now. That does, I I don't I reject the the suggestion that the cap that the tr- Democrats therefore are this height of capitalist rationality, but I think the point about Trump definitely are, yeah. definitely um, holds that you know he 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 will back these it's kind not, of individual capitalists. That's not quite it though, is it? Because I think what it indicates is the further kind of disintegration of the capitalist class, right? I mean, that's essentially what it. You know, mm. Trump is um, you know like um, I can't remember where it was. Um, but Trump is the um, the kind of the in terms of his um, you know his wealthy backers, it's the there's some hedge fund guys and whatnot. But it's kind of the their car car dealership out on the edges on the ex-urban kind of edges of town. I think it was Michael Lint's point actually. There's some bigger you know, there's so some bigger says, capitalists than that. But no, there the are, but the really big ones prop- are with the Democrats. Commercial property people and stuff like that. Yeah, but yeah, those people, right? But the really big ones are with the Democrats. Wall you know? Street and Silicon yeah. Valley. Yeah. Yes, they're with the Dem. So it's a split. I mean, that's the point. So it again, it would just reiterate the point that it's a lack of cap- cohesion of the capitalist class that there, those two factions, are, um, you know, are sufficiently embittered of each other that it's actually given an opening to um, to more populist concerns such as um, hmm. American Rust Belt voters, uh, Latinos and Blacks breaking away from the Democrats, and general kind of alienation and disaffection has kind of you know flowed into the gap. Um, which has opened up between these two wings of American capitalism. So I think it would kind of validate the thesis. Anyway, we need to move on. The other thing I would just say quickly, because I do think it is important, um, but I do want to move on then to the next chapter. But it's only to say the, um, I think, and I, you know, this is some, this, and I would admit this is perhaps an unfair criticism because it's the structure of Origi's theory. But the nature of his theory, I think, which is, you know, kind of tracing the evolution of world systems through the, um, you know, through the kind of the uh, Italian city-states and merchant bankers of the Renaissance, through the Dutch Republic to England, to America and so on. 
I think he underestimates um, or kind of crushes together distinct periods of imperialism in ways that that mean he misses out certain elements. And one of them is the fact that um, the imperialism of the modern era, of the kind of actual modern era from the late 19th century into the 20th century was also a populist project in a way that uh, American hegemony is not, particularly by the time you get to the Iraq war. You know, so when imperialism is born in the late 19th century with, you know, it's explicitly intended. I mean, famously, the Tory prime minister, Benjamin Disraeli, the imperialist prime minister, he appoints Queen Victoria, Empress of India, at the same time as he's extending the franchise to the urban working class. So it was very much a project of building popular support for existing regimes through imperialism, right? Um, As part of the extension of drawing in the masses and kind of extending popular participation. So it was built on popular enthusiasm and engagement. Whereas by the time you get to the Iraq war, all of that has dropped out. And the Regim notes, you know, the fact that they don't, they cannot do conscription or call on the draft, but simply because they know they don't have the political um, wherewithal to do it. Yeah. Anyway, so it's no, just just on. I'm, I mentioned Generation Kill earlier. I think this yeah. this kind of illustrates so the the limits of the kind of of the buy and even of the the Marines into this into this project. So it's yeah. I just thought I'd uh, again. It was really really good. If listeners haven't uh, seen it, do do watch it. It's good you mentioned the um, the David Simon because there's another David Simon. There's another David Simon show which maybe you guys are. Um, have seen and I didn't see, even though it was recommended to me, but I didn't get around to it. The Wire, which is no, I did you see should, The Wire. You should watch it. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for that very um, okay, millennial. Ooh, the Wire. Oh, we're not. Yeah, The Wire. Wait, brother, we're watching The Wire. Millennial, <laughs> millennial, the biggest kind of millennial TV show. So thank you for telling us your age there, George. Anyway, if I can continue now without interruption for the next chapter. There was another <laughs> there was another TV show which is relevant, which is Tremé. Um Tremé. about the flooding. Is it Tremé? Tremé? It was I don't know anyway, whatever. A David Simon show about Louisiana and the Hurricane Katrina flooding. And the reason I raised it is because, to be honest, I'd forgotten about it entirely, but he mentions it here. And I for- and you know, at the time, so he talks about the, you know, the kind of the failures of the American state. Anyway, the reason I raised it is because I kind of memory hold it for some reason. I'm not at the time. It seemed to me like it was very, um, you know, like the it fitted too easily into the left's kind of the British left's critique of the American state under the Republicans. And so I was always, um, you know, I was always trying to work out. I always felt like I had to cut through and try and kind of cut through what how it was presented by the foreign press to understand what was going on. But looking back on it, what strikes me now is the kind of the, and this was made in, I mean, I remember Alex Gorovich, who's a former guest and a friend of the pod. He said this at the time, it was relying, they kind of had to bring in the American military to prop up, to make up for the failure of the American state, not only in kind of, not only in the fact that they hadn't been, you know, kind of, looking after and the coastal defences and the levees that were supposed to prevent the floodwaters 
coming into New Orleans as a result of the hurricane, but also because just the incapacity of security services in the aftermath of the flood to deal with it. And so they actually had to kind of break some constitutional precepts, I think, to use deploy the American military on home soil. And, 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 and he mentions that the Canadians, or he quotes someone saying, you know, the Canadians arrived before the Americans were, because all the Americans yeah. were, were off in Iraq. And it was Amer- it was state failure, I think. You know, that was the kind yeah. of, it was the beginning yeah. of what is much more evident now is the proto-state failure. And you know, that was obvious, actually, yeah. in Katrina. It, it, I think if it happened a few years later, under a, a democrat administration then it would have been that would have probably been a little bit clearer but i think it kind of got swallowed up into like you know george bush doesn't care about black people kind of yeah. but but, but, yeah. but equally the you there's another counterfactual where like if it doesn't happen in, in new orleans and it happens in la or new york um it, it also um hits home and there's maybe the, some reaction to that but it's like kind of far away kind of provincial capital and I think the racial angle is important. The racial angle is, is not entirely negligible. Um, no, it's not. There was a racial, you know, no doubt a racial angle. But George's point is more that it was um, the significance of what happened was easier to see, you know, purely. I, I, I understand. I understand. Internal just, American politicking. Anyway, so, but that, I mean, we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves. So I don't know if any listeners have anything to say about Tremi or if they'd recommend it. But, um, Like I said, this was the most intriguing chapter. And the basic premise is um, it uses Charles Tilly. So again, kind of a recently, uh, a late kind of the late Charles Tilly. He died in, I think, the last 10 years. Um, but his kind of um, sociologist, and despite not being a, a Marxist sociologist, nonetheless, one of the most interesting kind of sociological thinkers, big sociological thinkers of the last 50 years. And his theory of state formation is a racket. Very kind of, very compelling. I don't think it's actually coherent overall, but the idea, you know, the basic idea is um, the Charles Tilly theory of state formation. War makes the state and the state makes war. The process of European state formation is, you know, kind of the mercenary gangs kind of traipsing around Europe during the Italian the Italian wars of the 1500s or in the Hundred Years' War in France or in um, the Thirty Years' War. It's basically this process by which, um, you know, they demand protection um, from burghers or villagers or farmers or peasants or whatever. They demand protection money. Um, and it, But they actually, it's a protection racket in the classic kind of... Um, mafia sense that the people that they're g- g- taking money from need protecting from those people right it's a protection racket and that this is the dynamic and the origin of state formation anyway so Arigi takes this to the kind of the debt relations of the u.s at the global level and he says that with you know with the um the U.S. and the kind of the when they had this period of uh, the U.S. kind of providing supposedly providing global security throughout the period of its unipolar hegemony, while the Japanese and the Chinese are buying treasuries, U.S. treasuries hand over fist in order to prop up the U.S. deficit. That you have a kind of um, 
that dynamic emerging, um, that it's effectively like a kind of a global racketeering, um, because at the end of the day, it's American power that you're paying to be protected from. And so it's like a world state. He also talks about it in relation to the um, vision of Franklin Roosevelt, FDR, in the aftermath of the Second World War, where it's American kind of globalism, I think, at its most ideologically sophisticated and in its most self-conscious form that the United Nations and the world order that FDR wanted to see coming out of the United Nations was a kind of global extension of the New Deal, effectively. Um, and that this was the proto-form of the world state growing out of the American state itself. I suppose, um, I mean, we've mentioned Louisiana already, and that was an interesting point more than a critical one. I suppose what I wanted to take from it is this, I mean, to test the argument, I suppose, how deep can you run it? The idea that the, you know, that this kind of um, multiracial, multinational, multiethnic, continental state that is so still so kind of overwhelmingly powerful and economically strong is the prototypical form of a future of a future world state of some kind um and that you know how far we can run that thesis and i know alex will obviously take exception to it because it means brazil must be subordinated to the gringos in the north no no i i liked it i i, I was pro fdr and i wanted a you know i wanted the new new deal globally wanted- i thought it was great <laughs> no i mean there is that there is something there is something you know the idea of a revolutionary state a state which is you know open to everyone in the world formally that that kind of ideological basis of the you know of the world state you know there's some there's potentially some mileage in that or there was at some point i don't think brand america is kind of probably quite as strong as it as it once was i mean that's obviously not why Riki says he's it's not like a it's a it's a political project in a slightly different sense and he says that it's you know this golden age of capitalism in the 50s and 60s wasn't the first golden age of capitalism there was one from 48 to uh, 1848 to 1875 but this is the first time that the declining hegemon during that time has tried to create this this world state to kind of i guess allow itself to segue and and, and continue that kind of um, position of, of of preeminence so it is like the stakes are are pretty are pretty high and you can t- kind of you can see how a lot of things make make sense in that in that context i mean yeah it fails for the reasons that you were you were saying there phil the you know basically it becomes a protection racket and also you know shows that it can't really do what it sets out to do like in in iraq it's like the project for new american century who is who's going to sign up to this world state if they um you know if they can't even kind of go somewhere and 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 exert and you know put the uh stars and strike flag wherever they wherever they choose so yeah i suppose it's intriguing perhaps because it it kind of cuts you know his sympathies are definitely against america you know um, I mean, I think, I mean, this is part of the overall critique or not with critique is maybe too, um, too grand a word, but my, um, you know, my distaste with Origi is his kind of Maoism crypto or not so crypto at different points. Um, and we'll come back to that 
in due course. But I suppose it's interesting because um, it raises, you know, like it raises a question about whether or not support for it's kind of the closest he comes to thinking that support for the American Empire is a progressive cause for people like him. And so it's interesting to see him kind of toying with um, an idea that cuts against all of his um, kind of third worldist political instincts and his willingness to kind of entertain it as an intellectual exercise, at least. You know, it seems to me to be um, interesting. But, I, mean, did, it's, I, mean, it's, I think it's worth re- recapping yeah. just the the, the, the sequence from, um, to, to name the touchstones, FDR, Truman, Clinton, Trump, um, in regards to this protection idea. Because I, I think it, because it also brings it into kind of con- contemporary issues into into view, where you know FDR's ambitious revolutionary vision for a world state extending the New Deal globally doesn't get the support from domestic capitalists because like we don't want to spend that much on this, right? So the kind of capitalist interests, the kind of more immediate capitalist interests prevail, and that's not surprising. Truman then is able to implement it. But in a in a much uh, in a less ambitious, less idealistic form, because it's wedded very immediately to anti-communism. Um, that anti-communism then kind of becomes the the main force, and it it becomes an anti-Soviet thing rather than the new New Deal, which may have even incorporated the Soviet Union in, in some form into this new arrangement, this global New Deal. So the Truman one, it becomes an exclusionary one rooted very much in, in Cold War and, and uh, those geopolitics. But it's still a bit rooted in the U.S.'s, and to use Origi's term, magnanimous approach to things. So basically, you know, the Marshall Plan, the rebuilding of Europe, basically the the sell is that, hey, you uh, defeated Axis power, but not only other other players in the international system too, you're going to get all these funds and you're going to develop and it's going to be good. In return, you're going to have to give up a bit of your sovereignty because we're going to basically determine what your military is and military dominate you and infiltrate your, you know, which is the case of South Korea and Japan, where they no longer are truly sovereign states because they're protectorates of the United States. But, you know, they're getting to develop, they're getting the high tech, they're getting all these trans technology and whatnot. So things are, you know, it's kind of a, a positive sum game, right? And everybody signed up to it. Cool. And then you get the phase where he mentioned, Origi mentions that Clinton kind of is the the beginning of the end of that where it becomes a, a protection racket, right? Where the <laughs> the thing to be protected from is from the U.S. itself. And so it puts countries, particularly weak, weak states, into this vice. And, you know, Serbia and the, the Belmy of, of, of the former Yugoslavia is a good example of this. The U.S. starts to abandon its own own organizations of the world system, the wor- of the world system, its own organizations which it had set up as part of the rules-based international order, um, and tries and starting going alone. Bush takes it then a step further, and then Trump goes comes along and goes. Actually, no, you're going to pay for your own security. I'm not fucking paying. We're not paying anymore, and that's a re- massive reversal, not just with regard to Roosevelt, but also with regard to to Truman and even to the the Clinton period. And I think that's that's fascinating. I think that was one of the most fascinating bits in the book in, in tracing the way that protection, imperial protection has changed. Yeah, you're right. And it is it is worth setting up that sequence. And, you know, like you say, kind of, it again kind of underscores how much um, Trump's kind of populist insurrection is a break with that prior kind of prevailing pattern of American politics on the global stage since 1945. And why and why and why the deep state kind of went crazy over that because it's like hang on you're giving up on the whole or, or the whole architecture yeah, the that whole we've built up yeah. 
for the American Empire. And You're will, fucking us no here. Doubt, you know, I know, you know, so all this kind of, all these, I think, I mean, that's why kind of, you know, the Americans won't um, leave NATO, which is, you know, you hear these kind of rumors being bandied about, but I think the deep state will prevent it, even if Trump does kind of win the election next year. Anyway, it's, uh, I suppose, the. Uh, I don't think we want to maybe get into it, but it's only to leave it hanging, perhaps with our listeners, is... Um, yeah, how far the, how shall I put it, like, how far that idea of an incipient world state should shape political responses. I can't really formulate it any better than that off the top of my head. But if we are living in this kind of stalled world, you know, stalled proto-world state, which is um, hinged around America... You know, I mean, I think I'm I'm enough of a of an Americanist to think that the the direct resu- the direct resolution of America's internal politics is immediately the resolution of world politics to a great extent. I think that is still the case, and less the case than it was when Arigi was writing, because now I think the relative erosion of American power necessarily means that there are more factors at play than there were before, not least, you know, kind of the Chinese Communist Party in Beijing. And so, uh-huh. so you're a Bernie Krat, Green New Deal, Bernie president. That would be a resolution of the, uh, you know, and build a hegemony with global consent. No, 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 that would not be the resolution. My point is only that, you know, I'm not saying any particular solution. I'm saying whatever, you know, whatever kind of is, um, whatever needs to be done in America internally um, to resolve the problems of American politics is also in significant measure a resolution of problems of world politics. And that's true at the level of like, you know, the status of the dollar, the structure of the American economy in relation to the rest of the world with debt, inflation, you know, um, market of last resort, are you saying anything other Energy. than are you saying anything other than America sneezes the world gets a cold? No, it's not it's I mean, it's I know that's that. that's an economic thing about No, but that growth, it's but not it's that because political. it's you know, that is suggests that the two things are disconnected. You know, they're kind of one kind of ha, one kind of is external to the other. I'm saying like it kind of if you take it as a you know, as a kind of incipient world state, as kind of a Rigi is fumbling with here in this chapter. It is then like it means that, like I say, that American internal politics is kind of world politics directly. World politics is not something that is, um, you know, kind of uh, like that I, little I, CEO kind of, you know, that little CEO toy of the silver balls that knock each other. Yeah, the perpetual motion thing. Yeah, yeah. But, but it's it's it strikes me that that is less true by the day, and and certainly a lot less true yeah. now than it was when Arigi wrote. And this. I suppose it's and it's a point. I suppose again, it's kind of a paradoxical outcome of Arigi's own claims, right? That uh, on the one hand, he has this thesis about American the American world state that never was. On the other hand, his whole analysis about the rise of China cuts against it because it means a multipolar or a bipolar world by definition is not a world that is a single state. And indeed that the Chinese one might be, could be more, far more peaceful and universal than, than the mm. US one, which I guess is what we're going to come on to. I guess that's, I guess that's Lulismo talking. Um, yes. <laughs> not at all. All right. Let us move on to part four. So part four, lineages of the new Asian age. 
is um, the title of this final section of the book. And again, just before um, kind of extracting a few themes that uh, I'd like to discuss in a bit more depth, I wanted to briefly walk us through um, the content of the chapters. So chapter 10 is The Challenge of Peaceful Ascent, and this is the this is kind of the name that was kind of, uh, I mean, it seems already it's kind of uh, forgotten because, you know, the um, the policy that became associated with China at the moment is the kind of uh, notorious kind of wolf warrior policy named for like some nonsense in a kind of Chinese film. But um, the idea being that unlike the era in which um, Arigi was writing, uh, China's diplomacy and uh, foreign presence is much more, self-confident and assertive than it was in contrast to the idea of the peaceful ascent that China could grow economically without causing political turbulence as a result of its expansion. And so that said, this chapter is mostly about American responses to China. And in particular, this is where the affinity, Arigi's affinity for American realism comes across most strongly because he talks through the various kind of strategies that are offered by U.S. thinkers of different stripes for responding to China, containing China, and in particular, Robert Kaplan, who is a realist of sorts, I think. He's closer, I think. I mean, he's kind of the most, uh, on the most neocon end of realism. Uh, Mearsheimer's kind of strategy of containment is offered for China, the most uh, kind of the paragon of living American realists. And then he also talks about Michael Lind, uh, who's also been a guest on the podcast for his most recent stuff. And, um, you know, somebody that I'm kind of become much more familiar with is, is of due to um, his writings on Trump's America and populism and so on. So this talks through the various possible responses to um, um, to China kind of mounted, which are uh, available to America and which have been kind of thrashed through and debated in American think tanks, American academia, op-ed pages of the leading journals and press and what have you. The next chapter talks about returns, kind of this is the book coming full circle now, and returns to some of the... Um, talking about some of the deep themes of the book, which is the different patterns of growth between East and West. But also now he ties in patterns of political development in Southeast Asia and East Asia and talking about this idea of a long East Asian peace. So in contrast to the Western world, which has only really enjoyed a protracted period of peace famously across the 19th century, between the end of the Napoleonic Wars and the outbreak of the First World War, he makes the claim that uh, you have a much um, deeper history of Pacific relations among East Asian and Southeast Asian states, despite the fact that you could, they could validly be seen as national states that was, you know, kind of cohesive and had stable power structures uh, in a way that was, according to Origi, analogous to the development of European states. So that the state formation model is not something that is unique to Europe. But at the same time, that these states in this part of the world nonetheless manage to avoid all being embroiled in the consistent in kind of entry in the uh, consistent warfare that has set the pattern of European development over the last five hundred years or so. 
So he talks about the East Asian peace and the implications and significant of that significance of that for um, for future development. And then finally talks about finally talks about the Chinese ascent in a very short chapter. And talks about the most, uh, some of the most significant fact being that the Chinese diaspora, the kind of the mercantile class around East Asia and in particular in Hong Kong, has been paradoxically so significant for the development of Chinese industrialization. They've kind of been the interlocutors, the mediators, both kind of reshoring their capital that they had from abroad, but also being the kind of mediators of external capital um, being directed and channeled into China's industrialization over the 19, well, from the 1980s and onwards, which is an odd kind of, um, an odd uh, quirk, I suppose, of Chinese development that it is indigenous, but at the same time kind of external to China because it's mediated through this, through the diaspora, the Chinese bourgeoisie abroad. So, uh, and then there's the epilogue, which is, um, you know, I think, I'm not sure that we'll um, that there's much to kind of talk about independently with the epilogue, but that's a kind of a, a spin through the final chapters. Is there anything, anything substantive before we get into some of the critique? Anything either of you want to bring up about the final few chapters? Yeah, I I found it a little disappointing actually i would say because the whole you know the book is adam smith in beijing and you know so you kind of i was kind of hoping that the final maybe i was expecting too much that the final part is going to show come some of these going to meet of, up again yeah yeah this kind of deep uh you know these deep dynamics and it's going to kind of all kind of i don't know be encapsulated in in something some kind of fact or anecdote or thing that happens which is going to bring it all together and it's going to kind of I don't know, summarize this historical process quite neatly, but obviously it's, you know, it's a, it's more open-ended than that. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's an attempt at a synthesis of a gigantic amount of information and it, and that is not um, completely straightforward. So yeah, I mean, just to go back, I, I think I, the, I, fa- I got more out of the third part than the fourth. I mean, that kind of decline and I guess like erosion and unraveling of American hegemony, that seemed to me to be more, compelling than the kind of the account of the ascent of of china because that would require a whole another book editor's collection set of books in and of itself so yeah no i I would underscore all of that um i think the 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 account account that is there of the main factors of, of of china's rise not the so much the deep historical stuff which is interesting about the the ming and the qing dynasties and whatever but you know the more more um 20th century stuff i thought was was interesting and it's kind of a, a nice bit to clip you know like there's about four pages there which you want to go back and reread and kind of remind yourself at least of this account of of, of why china was able to develop so rapidly i think that's cool and, and and useful but yeah we'll come we'll i'll leave the rest of the comments to to maybe the kind of final evaluation at, at the very end yeah i don't i mean i have to, i don't particularly i suppose the only the most interesting thing to say about the um the peaceful ascent is, and this cuts to the um the re, you know like it's never really been um the kind of the Marxist affinity for the realists is 
interesting because generally they take them, you know, they kind of, I think they misconceive the realists often because they generally take them as, um, you know, the reason they're drawn to them is I think because they see them as these kinds of clear-sighted exponents of national interest, you know, so that they're kind of the um, the best expression of the other side, I think. And this is what is the enduring fascination um, for Marxists of realism, because they're the mm-hmm. ones who kind of articulate what, you know, like what would be a rational response of America to Chinese growth? It's something the kind like of, what most- yeah, the kind of good capitalist. It's like, that's the, the, the baseline. That's at least, at least what you do is, uh, you know, articulate what your class or what your nation what the interest is and then you do that and you know without, without the ideological the, obfuscation about yeah. values and blah 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 you know. yeah which, and they which get everyone it, knows is bullshit so yeah and they get it just... and i think that they get that wrong you know because um they're you know particularly in this period you know they're kind of they're outsiders you know i mean mersheimer is the classic example of this you know he's not like an exponent, he's the critic of American foreign policy over Iraq, over Ukraine, over China, you know, like over um, Gaza. He's the critic of American foreign policy. And so yeah, kind it's, of it's, setting it, them up. And it's not Bismarck in Germany. I mean, it's like, you know, also in terms of the state's action itself, right? In terms of like Bismarck's unification of Germany. Okay, it's all very kind of calculated. And, you, you know, you know what the, the game plan is. I mean, obviously this is with, you know, with hindsight, but with the US, so, yeah. I suppose what I mean is I think they, you know, they um, they misconceive um, the place of realism, I think. But also it's it, the other part of that is I think it's kind of a Rigi and, you know, kind of um, Marxist in the vein of these kinds of debates, world systems theory and its um, rimland, so to speak, intellectual rimland, is um, they, I think they underestimate the significance of liberal ideology. You know, they kind of underestimate it. They think like, you know, that there is some kind of, that you could kind of render imperialist policy as clearly and crisply as a realist formulation of a foreign policy might be. But they underestimate the need for, um, I think they, despite all the talk of hegemony and Gramscian ideas of common sense and all organic intellectuals and blah, 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 you know, all of that, they just underestimate how significant and deeply rooted the need for you know kind of all the human rights guff all the kind of the um, bombastic universalist rhetoric you know that stuff is is deeply rooted it's not just camouflage for um, wars for oil you know it kind of it is a, a part an important kind of functioning part of the whole picture anyway so i mean i think i would i'd probably yeah. leave it there but I, just a quick gramscian addendum i mean like i think Gramsci actually understood the, I guess the the binding aspects of those ideas. Ideologies are precisely in one of their functions, bringing groups of people together, and that's what liberal ideas do to to kind of foreign policy classes. I guess if you if that is such a thing exists, it's not just yeah, it's not just adornment. It's a kind of you know, it's a thing which which allows people to recognise others in a similar situation and 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 bind themselves to that that way of acting so i did want to uh to stick up for uh for antonio a little bit there no fair enough and i suppose this moves me to the final two chapters and i kind of want to think about them together i think because i think this is where 
Arigi's kind of crypto Maoism or third worldism comes across most clearly and also to the detriment of his argument, I think, or the overall kind of thrust of the argument in the book. I mean, maybe, maybe I missed something, but it seems, you know, the kind of, it seems the kind of the East Asian peace argument, um, not that I want to factually dispute it, though, I mean, it's, um, you know, you're talking on the, the thrust of the argument seems to me to be like it's, um, there is a sense in which he's making the claim that these, this region is kind of intrinsically, is kind of at some level more virtuous or superior by virtue of being more pacific despite the fact that you're talking, even if you accept the claim that these are kind of uh, meaningfully national states in the way that European, early European states were, that they're, you know, they're nonetheless kind of more dispersed. Um, you know, when you're talking about kind of um, uh, countries that are further apart from each other by virtue of water, you know, there is no kind of South China Sea equivalent in um, in Europe, or there is no kind. You know, there isn't like an equivalent of the Indonesian archipelago in Europe. That it's unsurprising, I think, that they're less belligerent with each other. It's. I don't think it's something which is so necessarily kind of. You can infer much about the pattern of their development. Rather, it's simply a fact of. You know, that if you have states that are rubbing up against each other and they share borders the way that Germany, France and Italy do, you know, you're more likely to have conflict. Well, I, compared- and also, I mean, the, the conflict predate Europeans' discovery of industrialism and militarism um, in, in, in their modern form. Because, I mean, that's what he tries to say, that, you know, the kind of conjunction of capitalism, imperialism and militarism, uh, industrialism and mil- militarism, transform the nature of those states, which is something that doesn't happen in the East, because the East, you have growth, you have even a kind of form of capitalism or proto-capitalism, market-based, but which is kind of peaceful, therefore. It reaches a high equilibrium, to refer to something which is in the early part of the of, of the book, where it's like, yeah, you're, you're rich, population grows, but not in, interminably. Um, it, it kind of stabilizes at a, at a kind of relatively high level. And that's different from Europe because Europe maybe had a, a phase of that, but the but it was always capitalism from the start in Europe was associated with colonialism abroad, right? Going and getting gold and silver in in, in the Americas and and then slaves and whatnot, and then the development of industry in, in the nineteenth century kind of gives it this incredible um, military power and strengthens states, and that creates kind of things which we're no longer mirror images of each other at all. You know, they're really different kind of universes. And so as to the case of why, you know, there wasn't really war between Vietnam and China very much, or between even, even between Japan and China, which Japan was always interested in kind of becoming the focus in, in East Asia. And even so there was not that much war between again, China, Korea, Japan, Vietnam, uh, Indonesia, um, Kampuchea, et cetera, Thailand. There was in Europe, there was far more conflict between those powers well before the development of that kind of triumvirate of capitalism, industrialism, and militarism, right? Yeah, though so, I suppose you would say that is partly what propelled it. I mean... That, yeah, that maybe you, um, you couldn't develop under under kind of peaceful terms that it... Yeah, that it's, I mean, but it's not, you know, and it's not a point that's, uh, you know, it's a point which is, you know, you see it in Montesquieu and even as far back as Machiavelli, there's an understanding that the um, intensity of geopolitical competition and military rivalries 
is a spur to um, improvement, in fact. But there, but there was also the notion of, of du commerce, right? That the kind of increasing development of the market and trade would lead to more peaceful, yeah, more peaceful definitely. interchange and development. And I guess you can, you know, you can make that claim as being true at certain points in the 1700s, um, but especially in the 1800s, I suppose. In a way, is this not, I mean, maybe I'm I'm jumping ahead a bit, but this is kind of what Arigi's case is about China. It's kind of like a, 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 maybe a certain sort of revamping of the du commerce. Yeah. So that takes us nicely onto the the kind of, I suppose, the big, um, the big final point of the book. You know, so I mean, Arigi is not a classical Marxist, but certainly kind of in the Marxist tradition. But his, you know, his Marxism is a kind of, I don't know how else to put it, but it's as if, you know, he cast it as if kind of Karl Marx was writing human development reports for the UN. It understands the kind of the grand questions in terms of like, you know, broad patterns of economic growth in different parts of the world which particular configuration of trade and industry and agriculture was most propitious for um for kind of you know expansion of living standards and so on and all of that is well and good you know and it's not to it's not to suggest that those things are um unimportant or insignificant far from it but nonetheless that um there is an element which i think is present in both smith and in marx and but it isn't in origi is the fact that their vision was bound up, and particularly in the case of Marx, with a critical vision, um, which is to say, you know, that it was tied up to a vision of human emancipation, which I don't think matters for Arigi. You know, like for Arigi, he really is looking for a kind of a um, a kind of a policy mix and a model that would um, provide. Um, some kind of peaceful economic expansion as opposed to this rapacious militaristic imperialistic rivalrous kind of expansion that we have had over 500 years Paul, a poli- to say policy i think is is unfair it, it's more yeah, kind of I regime mean, that he yeah wants. so policy is putting it a bit too kind of, is forcing it a bit but you know that that kind of vision comes up is just is entirely dropped you know so when he you know, he makes the point somewhere that there's a Chinese thinker who kind of, you know, um, came across some of Smith's ideas about the market in advance of Smith. But all, you know, it's an element. What is vital to Smith's idea is the idea of civil society, just to say a society of independent individuals yeah, who understand society itself as the artifact of individual will, contra- you know, contracting with each other. And it's tied in, you know, I mean, you've, it's tied into an entire kind of enlightenment vision of that societal improvement is bound up with the realization of uh, human freedom at the individual level and at the social level. So yeah. Smith, you know, Smith's vision of the wealth of nations, prosperity and all that is bound up. It's kind of, it's just intertwined with the ideas of the enlightenment at the time. And that inevitably has a dimension of, of freedom, you know, individual freedom, like I say, that is no, you know, that I would, ha- I don't, I'm obviously not familiar with a Chinese thinker that he says is a kind of proto-Smithian equivalent in China, but it has it to say that probably doesn't figure 
in um, in that Chinese kind of political economist's outlook. And it certainly doesn't figure in Origi's, right? Um, the vision, you know, Marx's point about overcoming capital accumulation isn't, um, it isn't, um, you know, um, uh, just to find, you know, for the sake of finding a more kind of environmentally sustainable or socially less turbulent pattern of economic growth, but as part of realizing realizing a project of emancipation. And that seems to me absent. And so Arigi ends at this kind of Smithian idea of a, um, the Smithian idea of a world in which kind of economic growth rates are balanced out and harmonized, and you have technological diffusion, meaning that you have a greater kind of equality among races and peoples, and this kind of inter-civilizational harmony. And that, but that vision, you know, for for Smith, has no place for um, for something like Xi Jinping's Communist Party or um, the surveillance uh, state. Right. Well, so this is, you know, so I think, I mean, for Smith, you know, the Smithian vision is a world of like a a kind of a, a cosmopolitan mercantile China, which has been integrated into a world market, and like you say, has kind of been, um, you know, kind of has brought about a global, you know, a genuinely kind of global civil society that is peaceful and commercial. It doesn't, you know, the idea that a Chinese, you know, like a, a an autocratic China run at the scale of the, um, you know, the scale of the kind of uh, power of the Chinese state and its control over Chinese society and Chinese people, the Chinese people, is some kind of realization of the Smithian vision seems to me to flip things over. That's more kind of Mao in Edinburgh than it is Smith in Beijing. So, I mean, on the one, with regard to Arigi and Marx, I mean, it's he, he clearly is, I mean, he's clearly Smithian and he's not interested in any kind of withering away of the state of, or, or in, in some way where the, the civil society is not dominated by the, by the state. He's Smithian insofar as the state is still predominant and the state you know, the, it, civil society is a realm of freedom, but the state is there to still gu- kind of guide civil society. Is still right, so it's he is Smithian in that regard. But I agree with what you're saying. I don't think he sees the state as a realm of freedom at all. No, I didn't say he the state as a realm it. of freedom. Sorry, I didn't. I didn't. No, I'm sorry. I'm. Let me just re- rephrase that. Arigi is Smithian in regard in, in in and he's consistent with Smith insofar as seeing you know the the Chinese state a model of what the Chinese state could be and what its future could represent for the human race as something in which the state still is predominant, but kind of guide civil society where you have this kind of commerce and market-based system, um, but the state still kind of acts in the national interest. And that's kind of, you know, Smithian, right? It's not Marxist. But I, I agree with what you've said, Phil, in, insofar as it's like a little bit Smith out of the Enlightenment, right? It's like, Smith outside without the enlightenment concern for human emancipation. So it takes the kind of Smith's prescriptions, but without its very important historical context. So I think that, you know, I think that that definitely comes through. Yeah, no, I think that that idea of Mao in Edinburgh, I think that is a good way to put it, because if you 
I guess may, maybe Phil, basically what you're saying is he's not a Hegelian Marxist. And so he doesn't see the different, you know, all these kind of cycles of capital accumulation, it moves from here to there, to the other. And it's kind of this geographical and, you know, this, these people doing this, but where's the kind of the different stages of human freedom kind of overcoming its contradictions and enlarging itself. And, you know, but he is, he so doesn't have that. He's he kind of, and not everyone has to, but but I kind of have to say I am sympathetic to that line of critique because it, it ends up with a kind of, yeah, him him saying that, you know, the, the, the big question is can we have a more kind of mutual respect between peoples and more equality when kind of China becomes a global hegemon and it's like, well, yeah, you know, this is a bit kind of, if you're talking about world history, it's a bit like weak source really perhaps. Well, I mean, if you're talking about slogans, you know, it's peace and development not freedom. And then that sounds kind of a bit yeah. Stalinist, I guess, peace and development. Yeah. So, but it's also, I mean, you know, it's not also that those one... are bad things. I'm, I'm very in favor of, of those things. I well, should, I should but, I, you know, but, but it's war, so this... <laughs> destruction. But it was Kant's, it was Kant's critique, right? Of, you know, he said, like, you have a kind of the Ori, I can't remember the phrase that he uses. I think it's in Universal History. With a, towards a cosmopolitan intent, but he uses, he talks about like is you know kind of if you have this, um, he doesn't use the phrase Oriental despotism, but he talks about kind of uh, the, he says you know if you have something like a Chinese state which is based on which is harmonious and orderly and secure but doesn't have individual autonomy, is it worth it? You know, and he asks he asks the question, and I say it is a question you know worth asking. The other element of it is also that the um the you know the again it's not really kind of insofar as there is kind of intercivilizational respect intercultural kind of equality between these great kind of peoples and civilizations it's also a product of nuclear weapons right which obviously don't factor in the sense like you know the fact that china and america will avoid going to war with each other is because of the threat of nuclear annihilation it's not so it's not Smithian in that sense, because though he, you know, kind of uh, put his hope in technological diffusion, the idea of some peace, which is the product of a balance of terror, rather than um, a kind of uh, respectful, a respectful society of gentle commerce, you know, that is um, that is far beyond Smith's ken. I mean, so in a way, it's kind of I don't know if post-Marxist is 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 kind of a misleading way to put it but you know his concern is over almost the long durée i mean it's still more, more or less concerned with modernity although you know going back to kind of uh 14th century italian city states you kind of stretch into the far far uh, boundary of modernity but it's also where there's no you know force subject for for human emancipation and for revolution anymore right so in a way it's very much of our times of of it's very post modern in the sense of being after after the period in which the working class had constituted as, itself as a, as a real political actor and, and, and which had been defeated and where you're left searching for a kind of, okay, how can we build a, a better future in such context? And maybe this Chinese model will present that much more than an American one because the American one wasn't able to deliver on its world, um, you know, its world state and its new, new deal and whatever. Um, in fact, it 
became very regressive and and aggressive, you know, in in invading Iraq and and setting the world alight. And therefore, maybe China represents a more kind of peaceful model. Yes, maybe we have to give up on emancipation, but uh, we might have peace and development under under Chinese rule. Now, of course, we can update that to today and go well under Xi Jinping. That looks much further away than it did when. Arigi was writing this under Hu Jintao in, in, in 2007, I think, if I got that right. Yeah, though, I mean, even then, you know, like, we wouldn't want to overdo it. But, I mean, it's also, I mean, you know, the other aspect of it, which I suppose is worth, it's not just kind of um, Xi Jinping's um, authoritarianism and how far he's kind of tightened tightened the vice in China, but also the, um, you know, I mean, the, um, the, I mean, the Chinese growth model is sputtering. Famously, the big problem for Chinese growth, and it has been for a long time, perhaps not quite when Origi was writing, but certainly, you know, since um, the since the um, huge investment splurge that the Chinese state mounted in response to the great financial crash, the big question has been how to raise household spending in China. And they still can't do that. You know, it's still like it's a very kind of difficult for the Chinese state to raise consumption among the Chinese people. And that, you know, even on Origi, leaving aside emancipation, individual freedom and all that, even on Origi's own terms, that's a very basic kind of developmental question um, is, you know, you've kind of got your factories and you've got your swanky trains and, you know, bullet trains and you've got kind of uh, Wi-Fi and whatever and shiny skyscrapers in Shanghai. But if you still not kind of measurably improved wages and living standards and consumption, and probably not, you know, that isn't just economic. I mean, I think that probably ties into basic political reasons because it means stoking aspirations among various strata of Chinese society in ways that would be difficult to control and difficult to manage once they get going. That in itself speaks to, you know, problems of Chinese development. That it's unfair to, um, it's unfair, I think, to expect Origi to have anticipated perhaps, but it certainly would from our vantage point it would certainly motivate us to reassess his model and perhaps you know i mean the the failures of the or the limits of the chinese growth engine and its um difficulties of engaging of raising household consumption and spending and overall kind of li- standard of living perhaps it speaks to the point that you can't there are some limits to development that can't be done without actually engaging engaging civil society and engaging um, individuals and drawing them into um, to enhancing individual autonomy in you know in tandem with expanding expanding social and collective improvement and welfare so um final thoughts I guess um, if, yeah. if you have any indeed no just I think it's it's worth you know taking a step back and you know what what is the most valuable thing about the book i think it was for me that that kind of i guess the utility of thinking about the the american hegemony from a from a historical perspective and that's not you know that's not something which is entirely new but the way it's built up with such uh, such care and this you know the system is is established in in Arigi's kind of you know with all the the theoretical and historical content it is it is helpful and that i think if anything he doesn't kind of go far enough to to think about what are the 
what are the kind of consequences of American hegemony unraveling? And that's something which, you know, we talked about legitimation crisis with with Habermas. And, you know, these these things are very real determinants of of, of modern, well, not modern, of, of today's kind of global politics. And it's, you know, <clears throat> it's very useful for that for that reason, I think. So, yeah, that was probably the bit that I think I'll go back to that that kind of chapter seven bit was particularly yeah particularly good but yeah i think this was yeah this was your recommendation phil so also good to read some some origi so thanks for suggesting it was you know and i really like i have to say like uh it does um it's mea culpa you know i came to um i've always been a bit skeptical of world systems theory perhaps not for particularly good reasons so mea culpa for not uh, kind of really, I mean, I've read Origi before, but I hadn't read this before. And so I should think I should have come to it earlier. It's also provided some insights into my own research that would have been useful, I think, had I encountered them earlier. So that is, um, you know, kind of uh, my my own um, my own fault. And I, so if I had to take something away from the book, it's not so much any particular um, analytical insight or point as much as the the value and the intellectual ambition of thinking in terms of very taking significant theorists and thinkers such as Schumpeter, Smith, Marx, and thinking in terms of the broad patterns of social development, political change and development, you know, on the grand, on a world historic scale. That I think is, um, even if, you know, sometimes the twists and the turns of the argument are a tad convoluted and whatnot, I think it's ambition is um is tremendous and um you know it, it is only from people like Origi that you get books of this kind i think that are in any kind of way satisfying and meaningful you know if you compare it to something like i don't know stephen pinker's decline of violence book the better angels of our nature you know it's just kind of on an entirely lower level compared to this so that was my main that's my main kind of satisfaction i suppose from the book makes you sad about all the old marxists dying off even if even if they're bad marxists and not good marxists depending on how you want to evaluate that so it's kind of disappointing because you worry about that scope and breadth and, and ambition kind of dying off uh with them but anyway we will uh be back with more reading club but different a new reading club um, in well, news about it will be released in short order. Um, keep an eye out. Thank you very much for being with us over the course of uh, the 2023 Reading Club into the early hours of 2024, I guess, if you could put it that way. And we hope you've gained something from it. As I've said repeatedly throughout this, it's been very enriching for us doing it. And hopefully we've been able to convey that to, to you, listener, and, and convey our own kind of enthusiasm and um, interest and, and drive in trying to understand these big themes that we've explored this year through these big books, challenging books. And hopefully we have done something to enlighten you, or maybe if you haven't had a chance to read them, but been able to follow along listening to the podcast and go, oh, okay, I feel like I know what this book is about. And that's been useful for me because I can then go forward and use that in my life, <laughs> in my practice, in my um, political work, or, or go back and, and actually read the book and um, feel like, no, this is something which I now have a grasp on. I'm going to go and read this myself. Be interested to know also how you um, how you indeed go about this. You know, you've been reading the book, following it long after. You just like listening to the episodes, kind of passively learning, 
and that's cool too. It'll also help us kind of inform what we do going forward. But we'll let you know as and when. Once again, thank you very much for being with us for the 2023 Reading Club. But we'll be back. We'll see each other again very, very soon. Uh, next week, in fact. Catch you later. Bye-bye.